Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, we are here again. Weeks. It has because you keep yeah. traveling. I do. Yeah. 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 I was last week. I was out in the Barrier for the Kotlin at Google Summit. Ooh. It was an internal conference for Kotlin, and it was, it was awesome. Did you learn a lot? I actually did. Yeah. You would not believe how hard it is to make it so that in a debugger you can evaluate an expression, uh, especially in Kotlin where the bytecode is not um, representative of the code always because mm. of things like inlines. Mm -hmm. that, you know. So anyway, it turns out um, it's a hard problem and I learned all about it. Nice. And I'm, I'm glad I do not work on compilers or debuggers. It's hard. Um, also, the... Um, summer tech forum is now a developer retreat which means well it companies seem to be still reluctant to send people to yeah. places for conferences so now there's no fee and there's uh, very little structure but developer retreats we get together and work on interesting things and go on hikes and mountain bike rides and that kind of thing so but uh it's it's very unplanned so, so th this is august through the 14th, I thought it, oh, I thought yeah. it was 13 through 18, but okay. no, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, um, but anyway, it's up on the summertechforum.com. Okay, so if you go there, join you'll see. Join us in Crested Butte. Join us in Crested Butte. We'll do a live episode with Ooh, the people who. That's a good idea. Who come up for? It. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, that's a great yeah. idea. Uh, speaking of Crested Butte, um, we have a guest with us, Josh Thoret, longtime friend of mine. Who you came up here for a Java Posse roundup? Was that right? I think, or it was the first tech forum, maybe, or like when it switched the to tech forum. Oh, maybe yeah, it was it was the there. first winter tech forum. Yeah, but, okay. yeah. yeah. it was yeah. great. So uh, you've been up here. I had a good time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Josh. So we, uh, I used to work with Josh at TypeSafe, now Lightbend, and I'm gonna forever say TypeSafe, now Lightbend, yeah. um, or maybe I should say Scalable Solutions. Uh, formerly known as TypeSafe. Oh, they changed their as, name again. It's they're on like the fourth name or something like That's, that. Uh, yeah. Wait, did they change the name? A... It's, it's not Lightbend anymore. No, it is. Yeah, it's still Lightbend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Changing yeah, a was... company name yeah. is a really questionable move. It's it's like a CEO power move. <laughs> I'm going to change everything. I'm going to change the name. Yeah, yeah. I. Well, and it usually doesn't work out that well. <laughs> I believe it I was Scalable the Solutions and then that, uh, like ACA or something. And then they joined yeah. together. And that's when we became TypeSafe, which is what I will forever know it as because it was TypeSafe sure. the entire time I was there. And it became Lightbend yeah. shortly after I left. Yeah. Yeah. I think you were so, you, you left before it became Lightbend, right, James? Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 Um, James okay. seems to have an uncanny ability to know when to move companies. Yeah. Um, so, Josh, we. When we were at TypeSafe, we worked on on build tool build tooling stuff together, and that was a whole lot of fun. So Bruce and I have a lot of questions about build tools for you. Um, All right. We why why do build tools always suck? Like <laughs> it seems like it seems like everyone always hates build tools, no matter what the tool is. Like why why is build tooling so hard? Yeah. So this is. Uh... A really important question, I would say. There's there's a lot of aspects of software in this category of this is something that I need to do to get my job done, 
but as a normal developer, I don't care about it. I just want it right. to work. I don't want to learn about it. I don't want it to get in my way. However, it's a really complicated uh, environment sometimes. Like there's a lot of really intricate um, pieces of software in build tooling and a lot of hard problems depending on what the language solves for you and what is left open to you. Um, so when it comes to build tools, right, the, the, uh, the basic problem is I want to like not even care about it. I just want to write code. I want that code to build. I want it to be completely scalable. I want it optimized. I want it debuggable. And I don't want to think about it. And then uh, there are people in the world who actually love that kind of aspect of, oh, how do I stamp this? How do I get, you know, signatures on things? How do I make sure that it's verified? How do I control all the versions exactly? And that kind of junk that I'm using. Um, and they love build tools. So, uh, what you they, do when you own a build tool or work on it is you try to, to address those two people, right? There's like, for the most part, anytime you make a feature, you're like, okay, if I'm someone who just doesn't give a crap at all about this build tool, what should this feature look like? Like, it should not be in the way. It should be dead simple. You should copy and paste it from Stack Overflow, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, and if you, anytime you fail at doing that, you piss someone off and they hate you. Uh, and guess what? You're always going to fail. Yeah. So you've been the uh, recipient of a lot of SBT hate over the years. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's so hard to please everyone because you're, you're trying to please people with very different objectives and goals, the build engineers or the software, the, the developers who don't want to care about the build. You're trying to please both of them. And whatever you do, you can't please both generally, or it seems really hard to please both. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, we, we actually, a lot of the debates internally in SBT were like, what should the default project support that comes baked in? Um, it was highly tuned for making open source libraries because mm. the authors of SBT when it first started and like when, when I took it over, took over you know, the uh, kind of direction was still, we were making open source libraries. So the default build made that simple. That's not necessarily yeah. making it simple for someone who wants to deploy, you know, a function on the, on the cloud or someone who wants to run an executable or make a, a cluster, right? Um, so because yeah. of that, like, differential, now you have all of these different use cases you have to match. And to the extent you make that a one-line config change, you know, people will love you. To the extent yeah. they have to do anything at all in a build file, they will hate you, right? Yeah, I mean, I remember with SBT, when I first got into it, I'm like, oh my God, this is so complex and I don't understand anything and I don't want to understand anything. I just want this thing to do what, you know, I need it to do. And um, yeah, because I'm excited about getting my program to work and this is in the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Bruce and I were working on our book last night and, and then also working on a, a build tool related project. But we spent more time in the build, working on the build, than we did actually writing code. And that, that's a frustrating experience for someone who just wants to write the code. So I feel like SBT, maybe coming from that world of, of some complexity around the model for, for, for the build, which is maybe unavoidable complexity, but we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, 
but coming from the place where it was created for library authors as a user of SPT there that complexity was kind of right in my face quickly and i think that SPT for years got a bunch of flack for for that experience not being optimized for people like me but then yeah. i want to hear about how i think over over a number of years that really changed and i and i think that SPT really got to the place where for most users it wasn't that painful and and users i mean people that didn't want to be build maintainers or did you just get more comfortable with spt you yeah. may have the curse of knowledge here it's true i think it's probably a little bit of both james actually is a more advanced spt user i can say that with confidence having seen things he's done in spt but um i also have heard like the best compliment i ever got at a conference was someone came up to me and hey you know what spt is no longer the worst thing in the scala ecosystem <laughs> Right, and, and that's, that's like, what you're that's, aiming for with the build that, tool is to not be the worst thing in the ecosystem. Yeah, just not well, be last. I mean, yeah, we, we we aimed higher, but like it was a sign that things were improving. And like so, to 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 go to one of the things you said when you first hit SPT, all the complexity was in your face. SPT was called simple build tool, and the simple was actually about the complexity as you learn the tool. Um, so if you've used say Maven or Gradle. I can slap together a Gradle build real quickly. As soon as I have to do something like make a custom task, I get slammed with a whole bunch of additional complexity. Now I want that task to cache things. I get slammed with a whole new set of complexity. Now I want it to interact with other plugins, a whole new set of, and it just, it just compiles and compiles and compiles. So SPT was designed where the complexity of doing anything in it was the same. It's not about huh. being simple. It's about like a same complexity. So if you huh. learn how to do one thing, you can do anything in the tool. That's the original design. Um, however, <laughs> uh, I, I, it's obvious that that's the wrong thing for a build tool, right? Huh. That might be the right thing for, say, a collection framework, maybe, <laughs> um, possibly. But I still think it's that's not the right kind of attitude in general for software, for any domain. If you're providing an abstraction layer, you want to make sure that there's a, a component of it that is abstracting away that layer so people don't have to think about it. And so the the fundamental tenet we had going into SPT when, when I um, started working on it was, okay, you need your first primary user is someone copy-pasting things from Stack Overflow. You don't support that person. Like, this is a person who just wants to work on that. a project. Yeah. They're, they're like, I just want to add a library dependency of this cool library I'm trying to I don't need to understand how that flows into the, the deployment model. Um, I don't need to understand like this, like test colon arrow, whatever crap that, that is like added to library dependencies. Just tell me how to copy paste it. I'm going to be looking at some other example and it better work. Right. Yeah. If I, if I can't copy paste and modify like a string, then we fit. And that, that absolutely. Without having to understand the build life cycle. Right. Yes, exactly. It, yeah, you yeah. shouldn't have to understand how we cache things to add a library <laughs> dependency, right? Uh, so but that's I think that, that, that was like really is a critical things. a critical point is that that is something that significant significantly changed SBT from the user side was the copy and paste ability did evolve over time, and I think when users like me were were frustrated by SBT, it was because the copy and paste ability wasn't mm -hmm. wasn't as good as it got later on 
Yeah, and I do want to. I guess there's two sides of that. Like one is the like build tooling side and the and the build definition side, but then the other side is having good answers on Stack Overflow and (laughs) uh, you know the documentation having what you need in it and that sort of thing. Do you suppose Rust's tool might have been named for cargo culting? (laughs) You know, so you can just cargo cult your way into a build. Maybe that's why they called it that. It it is nice. Like if you've used Cargo, your ability to get a project up and running uh, almost instantaneously is right there. And Rust's oh. uh, uh, attention to error messages is great. Like it's, uh, I would argue their their the class of tooling in Rust is is significantly good, um, and kind of a, a good model, I would say, for a lot of other ecosystems. Um, with SPT, honestly, we had good Stack Overflow answers and people who would answer Stack Overflow. These are people who treated builds as software. They didn't think of it like, oh, I want to do my software. They thought of it like, oh, the build is my software. right? Um, and they were answering things. The problem is you could copy paste it out of Stack Overflow and get some crazy error message that you didn't understand very easily yeah. and have no idea how to like unify this right? in, in, in the old system. So... Um, I do want to credit Mark Herrick because I, I gave him this challenge of figure out copy paste and he came up with those macros that we ended up using where we had independent lines. Each line could yeah. be copied in and each one was kind of a, a setting and kind of yeah. more declarative. And it just leaned into the declarative nature that SPT should you know, have had to begin with. Um, yeah. Because the original SPT was more, let's model a build as a class and I have it was like not, write your build as a Scala program, basically. As a Scala program, but like with classes and inheritance as the way that you share yeah. config and things. Um, yeah. Having seen that and having worked across a lot of different build tools, I still think that's fundamentally not a great model. I just it doesn't seem to fit well. Um, when you run into the limitations of it, things fall apart hard. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I wanted to go into, which is there's there's this spectrum of build tools ones that are fully declarative, ones that use general purpose languages. SBT uses essentially a general purpose language, but with a kind of a higher level DSL on top of it. Um, Gradle does the same thing with Groovy and with Kotlin. Um, whereas Maven, you know, no <laughs> fully declarative, like no ability to program in it unless you want to build a plugin. Um, and I've, I've wondered, there's trade-offs to both of those. Like the declarative model is easy for tooling. It's easier for copy and paste. But as soon as you hit the boundaries of what you can do declaratively, then it's you're, you're into a whole nother world of, of programming and how you control the build. And then on the, the general purpose language side, you can do everything, but then that leads to a lot of upfront complexity, I think. So I don't know, how do you, like, is there a, possible middle ground or you just kind of have to pick what which you want to optimize for yeah because i have to say the dsls in gradle have not helped you part of that i think is that they were designed around groovy Mm -hmm. and then ported to kotlin and i think if they started with just kotlin that they could have probably done a better job making rational i do i don't know i also feel like the mindset of the design just, I don't know. It didn't fit in my head, that's for sure. I, I feel that, but personally with Gradle, um, I think the rigor that they've added to their model over time has, it, 
they've tried to keep some things backwards compatible and some of the core decisions they made when they actually made breaking model changes to how the build actually functions. And so you get more and more of this cognitive dissonance on that API. You know, like, again, they added a really great caching layer around tasks and things that you have to opt in in that DSL. And when you do so, it just, it feels like a completely foreign object to the build, but it's actually core to how Gradle works, right? Um, yeah. So it's just really weird. Uh, but, and I think partly that's because Gradle has such a long history, started much simpler, you know, and, and evolved. But I, I totally feel you there. I would say if you, if you looked at Bazel, um, I'm personally not a huge fan of mono repositories, which we can get into later. Um, ironically, I work at Google. But anyway, um, if you look at Bazel, how they fragment between like creating new tasks and uh, using existing kind of declarative syntax, they do a decent job of here is an API that is Python that you can embed in our build file, but it actually kind of evaluates almost separately or, or independently of then the declarative syntax of here are my dependencies. Um, so there's a clear delineation between when one thing runs and when another to the, to the developer. There's a well-documented kind of like Python scripting language in there um, that uh, is, is decent. And then you have these uh, really, really heavily declarative, like I do this thing and only this thing. Um, it takes away a lot of flexibility in terms of what you can do. Uh, but in practice, it's uh, I, I think they know what they wanted to do and kind of nailed a developer experience around it. So if you can abide by the limitations imposed by their overall design, that one has, I think, the best split between how to do configuration and then how to do customization. You don't huh. feel like you're in a completely different world. Um, you feel like I'm just in the lower layer. You know what I mean? Like, okay, yeah. I can see how this layer and this layer fit now. That's the ideal I understand this layer and I can do anything like, I need. Yeah. yeah. That's the ideal way to have abstractions is that when you're working at the higher level abstraction, you don't even have to think about the lower level at all. You don't have to know that it exists. But as soon as you need it, you should be able to seamlessly drop down to it without having to totally revamp how you've thought about things or how you, yeah, how you've done things. Um, that that sounds like a better model than that kind of fits between the declarative and the general purpose. It's like, yeah, maybe we can maybe we can have a model that's both. It reminds me actually of uh, Flex, where one of the things I actually liked about Flex was that you had the declarative XML language. And as soon as you needed to drop beyond that and have more flexibility, you were in the, the imperative language. And, but, the, but the declarative language was really just a, a declarative layer on top of the imperatives. And so you always knew the direct correlation between the two. And if declarative works, great, use it. If not, drop down to imperative. And I don't know, transition always felt Felt, felt good, but yeah. Well, have you ever heard the term paradox mapping? No, because no. this is this is exactly one of those scenarios, right? It's it's um, if I want to be completely general purpose and and super flexible, I expose these low level details in this imperative language that can do whatever the hell it wants. But then if I I want this like declarative, dead simple to use language, 
and I have those two users, and they're literally at odds with each other. The more I focus on this one, I can do it at the detriment of this one. So what yeah. you do when, with that kind of a paradox is you look at, okay, what's the good of the left-hand side? What's the good of the right-hand side? What are my negatives? And then you, you go try to bounce. And that's, that's literally what you're doing. You're, you're defining where the bounce is for your tool. And you try to look at, okay, if I am too declarative, I am completely inflexible and I can't service use cases. So then you watch your bug reports on your build tool and you watch your user feedback. And if you see, I can't do this, I can't do this. How do I do this? How do I do this? Like it's a constant theme. You're like, okay, we're too declarative. We got to work on the imperative. Similarly, huh. if you're on the imperative and people are like, I don't, <laughs> I, I, they, like, this is annoying. How do I even set like one library dependency, which is where SPT kind of does, right? Um, yeah. It was, it was too flexible when it first came yeah. out and not declarative enough. You know, you look for that and you try to map to the other side, but really you're bridging two at odds goals. And you yeah. can't do both at the same time, but you can find a balance in the middle. And you don't want to swing back and forth. Like, you know, Maven was a huge swing from Ant, right? And Ant was yeah. like, you only get tasks, you can only like do little basic, in, you know, implementation things. And it was, you know, XML make. Um, but done well, in a way it, that was really that hard. Ant, Ant and Flex both kind of went off the declarative rails in the same way. Uh, so so I, I, it was probably Ant that was actually first in this. JellyScript. Do you remember JellyScript? Oh, so yes. people with Ant were like, oh, the declarative is insufficient. So they created a XML declarative programming language, which you know had had logic structures and imperative programming in XML. And interestingly, my example of Flex did the same thing down the road because people <laughs> were like, How do I do an yeah. if statement in my declarative language? Well, we don't have that. You have to use you have to drop down to the programming language. They're like, that's too hard. So then they added like if blocks and stuff in the XML. And I'm like, like, okay, you, at that point, like, I don't know, it's Getz's law, which uh, Brian Getz has something along the lines of um, every declarative language slowly slides towards being a terrible general purpose language. And it's like, I think you have to really intentionally be like, no, here is what the declarative language is good for and good at. Let's not take it beyond that. Yeah, yeah, oh, I, I totally, I totally buy that. The, um, by the way, Jelly was the for Maven one dot X plugin in Jelly. Yeah. Yep, the XML yeah. Jelly. So, yeah. so Maven two was much better in that you could use a real language for your for, for your plugins instead of everything. Yeah. In XML. But, um, there, I still personally, um, and this might be a, a preference thing. I still think there's value in like a language which blends some declarative aspects with some executional aspects um, when it's done well. And you kind of see this in a lot of modern programming language design where there's there's a kind of a, a focus on constructors where I make, uh, like in Rust, for example, I can allocate structures real simply, uh, almost in a human readable, you know, JSON-y view. And then I can blend in some imperative or like, you know, logic later but I have this aspect of my language that's just dedicated to config in a modern yeah. programming language um, for general purpose. And that's because I think there's, there's, a, there's almost always a need 
for a declarative looking block of code, no matter where you are, if you're a build tool or not. Yeah. Right? There's there's always that need. Um, yeah. And I am a fan of languages that help make that simpler. You know, I think uh, Scala 3 versus Scala 2, some of the syntax changes they made actually make this a bit better. But interestingly, yeah. I, you see other languages like Dart, for example. Um, there's Dart is a language that I, I, I have a love-hate relationship with. There are like a few ideas in there I think were phenomenal. And one of them was a mechanism of doing hierarchical allocation of uh, classes that just turns into a more elegant looking thing, right? Yeah. Um, and it, and it, you yeah, really Colin feel like you're working on- safe builders. Yeah or also called Lambda, or built on Lambda with receivers. And I, I heard a term pretty recently that I was surprised I hadn't heard before, but it was EDSL. So we've talked about DSLs and programming for a long time, but EDSLs being the embedded DSLs, or the languages that have the ability to kind of embed a DSL within it. I always thought those were just called internal DSLs versus oh, external maybe it is DSLs, but it's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, but now so the, we so have I, external I the, and embedded, so they're both EDSL. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that gets tricky. Well, XDSL. Yeah. Um, so it is great that programming languages are are embracing the idea of these EDSLs or whatever we want to call them, and so that we can get the declarative style structures within the programming language itself. Um, and yeah, I think Kotlin's done a good job of that. Sounds like Rust has done a good job of that. Um, yeah, well, I do have a question for both of you. Stuff. If you've done, um, you know, modern cloudy stuff, say Kubernetes, right? What do you think of <laughs> YAML as an execution language? God. Uh, so, so terrible. So terrible. And, and, I mean, that I mean, just totally can... gets his lot, is that, that, that the, it's this terrible declarative language that that you it has so many foot guns and then people try to build this general purpose language on top of it. And it, it just turns out to be such a horrible idea. Um, so here's something, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, how it's going to come out, but the next version of Python is going to include, um, I assume it's a library uh, as part of the batteries included for Toml. Oh yeah. I so I don't know yeah, if that's Toml support. In, yeah. In Python. Yeah. That's Toml actually is a good a example. Much better option than yeah. What What did you say? Oh, that's a good example. Of what I was suggesting with kind of modern language design, having you know embedded configuration components in your general purpose language. I I, I love that that's coming. I mean, not that I'm a fan of Toml specifically. I just, I love that these features are coming in the languages because I think there's so much value to have those declarative aspects in your language. And then you can immediately then blend in your imperative. It's, it's, I, I, again, we, if we talk about like a paradox map, right, between configuration mm -hmm. and imperative, you're, you're, you need both. And uh, I, my firm opinion is configuration is code, right? Mm -hmm. When, I, when mm -hmm. I'm writing configuration, I'm changing the behavior of a program in a more yeah. limited fashion. When I am yeah. writing a program and I expose configuration parameters, I'm exposing a new programming language for like the person operating the binary to leverage. 
right? They, they change the behavior. They script it. It's, it's basically I'm inventing possibly a really shitty programming language for them to leverage. Yeah. Usually. Um, <laughs> at least yeah. if I'm writing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, well, and I guess that but, back to SBT, I think this is something that SBT did well is to, to give you that declarative language, but do it in a way where you can escape hatch very easily out to Scala itself. There's so many times in my builds where I'm like, oh, I just need an if block in here. And you can just throw it in and still do your declarations, like, you know, mix your declarations with your imperative logic. And, and if, I don't know, it feels natural. You don't lose the copy and paste ability. Um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's actually a pretty good model. My experience, uh, initial experience was with make and make was purely declarative. But then there became, uh, oh, I think it was GNU Make. And they started adding language components to solve that problem. And then, and I kept coming, coming along with them. And then I could see where they stood at the precipice. And they go, oh, <laughs> we're trying to make a language here. Oh, we better stop. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. That gets his law playing out again. Yeah. Well that's where um, it like a good model of a, a, a build tool that didn't cross that boundary. And I think because of distribution things um, was, is basal, right? Like they, their fundamental core model is make it is. I have files as inputs. I have files as outputs and I have a thing I run to generate that. And that thing I run is a little Python script. Huh. That Python script can execute things, whatever. Um, that's like the fundamental core model. And then you as a user don't interact necessarily at that model. You say, I have a project, here's what it is. When you declare dependencies, you declare dependencies that may be like meta, if you will, but under the hood, that meta dependency is still considered like a file, <laughs> right? And it still mm. generates stuff. Um, yeah. So it, it's it's a very, very, very simple model with kind of like that escape patch that I think worked well. And they, they kept their line and the way that they solved it was to add a completely new mechanism that from a user standpoint, you feel like you're in the same build file, right? You feel like you're in the same build system, but you're not at all practically, right? The one runs completely different than the other, even though it feels the same. In SPT, I think the, the biggest mistake we made, um, the underlying setting system is a multi-dimensional uh, kind of uh, weird dependency matrix of Doom. It's it's a really cool paper um, from Academia for how to how to do um, kind of inheritance across dimensions and 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 uh, you know n dimensional kind of theory configuration thing. Um, and it was looked at as okay if we make this a fundamental model, we can do cool things like leverage the exact same definition for test in in compile. Um, from compile, sorry. The definition of compile yeah. can be used in test to compile your yeah. test code separately. And we don't have to rewrite that code. Um, in practice, that model was conceptually very difficult for developers to understand. And even though we got the declarative aspect down, understanding like if I have a compile, uh, or, you know, if I have like a compiler setting, right, of like, you're my compiler file. I had this then n-dimensional space of compiler flags for testing, for compiling, for running, and and that n-dimensional space was rather complicated. 
and really confused. Well, and there's an inheritance like hierarchy to it as well, which, which yes, it's like multi-dimensional with with inheritance or with with some hierarchy underneath it as well. So yeah, and yeah, like hard to wrap that my was, head around. It was a fundamental aspect of reuse of SBT, and it was something that we were never able to make it kind of either intuitive to everybody or simple to everybody. And I think that's where, when people still hate SBT, um, that's the thing I would point at as the most complex and hard to use thing. It was the most flexible thing from a development standpoint in terms of how we could accomplish a lot of things, but it also limited how it scaled too, right? Like it was, it was both the success and the failure of, of SBT to be able to grow, you know, beyond where it is now um, was, was that have, specific system. I don't think I've ever found deep inheritance hierarchies to be understandable. You know, I, I know it's like, oh, well, you just go to this level and you modify this thing. And it's like, it just becomes overwhelming so fast. I think that was one of the, this is why, you know, people are reacting now so much to, object-oriented stuff. I think it was the inheritance hierarchies and <laughs> just at some level the layers. hierarchy gets um, well, it, incomprehensible. You can't, <laughs> you can't hold all that code in your brain. Like, yes, if you're yeah. going to figure out what happens, you click on a method, it has one line and calls another method. Mm -hmm. uh, great. That's not where my bug is, but I have to remember that line when I click on the next one now. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we were also going to ask you why um, I guess it was Plugins. Oh, before systems. we go to plugins, I, oh, I have okay. an extension on this topic. So yeah. one thing that SBT has done really well is build debuggability. And I feel like part of the the reason why it's able to be so good in SBT is because of a foundational model of, I don't know, immutable data structures or something. I don't know. Tell us about like how, like what is it that makes build the debuggability in SBT good? Because I, I feel like it is actually really good. Yeah, um, this is this is where you want to limit limit your model. So that, uh, like I said, the the setting system in SBT was its, its greatest success and its greatest weakness at the same time. Um, in SBT, there is a kind of a runtime lookup of everything that's going on, but we didn't just model say tasks. Like we didn't model just um, this is the name of a task a user can type. We actually modeled all the way down to here is a setting the user has. And we kept the entire graph of, you know, this setting maps to this. This setting is used by this set of tasks. Um, because in SBT, when you define anything, you're defining an edge in the graph. Um, you're defining mm -hmm. here, set this value to these things that I consume. And we limit the uh, language that you're allowed to use. SBT does not use Scala, right? It is its own language that in some cases you can use Scala, huh. right? So when I say like, you know, foo colon equals bar, that colon equals isn't equals, right? You're not literally assigning a variable. You're assigning something else where we could instrument and actually track all the dependencies. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite things in SPT, um, so if you're familiar with flat map, but I don't want to get into like monadic things, but this is important for, say, executing tasks. Um, if I have a, uh, a, a test suite runner, right, and I want to pass that test suite runner a collection of tests, I could have a set of tasks that are defined as their own um, 
tasks in SBT's file, and then I could pass a collection of them to another thing and then run that collection. Um, when I try to like create a task that uses another task, that is when observability dies in SBT. That is when I can no longer inspect the dependency chain, yeah. right? Because this is the task dynamic piece, right? The dynamic. Yeah, task. that's what task yeah. dynamic is in SBT. Yeah. That's where you can have a dynamic dependency on the graph that we aren't aware of, which allows you to do some advanced things. There is a way to encode task dynamic such that we retain full visibility. And what it means is, uh, so how do I phrase this? Um, in a general purpose language, right? Um, I can say, I can define a function in line anywhere and then run it. So in SBT, I could actually define a function that does whatever, a task that does whatever the heck I want and run it inside of task. Dynamic. And everything that does is invisible to me. What we yeah. looked at doing, and this never made it in SBT because it was a bit too breaking, but, but would have fixed the observability problem. And we really negotiated this. You can actually require that subtask to have been defined somewhere else in an observable fashion with all of its things hooked up that you never really run. And then you can load it in and run it multiple times dynamically as long as everything's pre-registered. So we went to all these weird hooks to make sure that effectively anytime you have a dependency that a task brings you so it's trapped. That yeah. means you're not using normal Scala code. You're using macros. You're, um, if you look the at the syntax of SPT. Instrument, the instrument and like the, the, one of the values of, for the lead to build debuggability is that the build tool can fully understand the graph of how everything relates. Right. And, and you need some way to do that. And Scala doesn't give it to you at least by default. And so you use macros to, to add that on top. Yeah, SBT actually has its own compiler <laughs> where it, it extends the Scala compiler um, directly at the parser level to be able wow. to parse things appropriately and then turns them back into kind of a, a, a class file that it compiles. Um, huh. But yeah, fundamentally every line of an SBT build file becomes a Java class file where the dependencies are completely clear. Like, like a, a setting in SBT I know every setting that needs to go into it, and I know the value that comes out of it, um, and that makes it easy to track. Basically, yeah. functional programming, if you think of it as pure functions, it's easy to instrument pure functions because your your inputs and your outputs are well-known. It's yeah. harder to do imperative, but imperative is still necessary. Yeah. Um, but well, you have yeah, to enforce that at the model. It's one of the reasons why why the immutable model of SBT, um, why that why that fits is because you also need immutability to be able to have correct uh, graph, you know, analysis or tracking. Well, yeah, yeah. The when, a, a way another way to say that is a, a setting is the shape of what will happen, but it doesn't actually execute anything. It's just you yeah. know, it describes the edge. It doesn't do it until you actually run a task or something. So it's, I, I guess I've used SBT long enough where I think I kind of understand the model of SBT and what's underneath it. Um, Bruce and I have really struggled with Gradle because we we feel like we just don't at all understand the foundational model for the build tool. And it feels like 
at what point when I'm working on my build, should I, would it, would it be much easier if I actually understood the underlying model underneath it? And um, yeah, how quickly do you throw that in the face of the developers, the users? <laughs> That's, I think, a hard, hard question. Yeah. Well, and is I, the model simple enough where you can do that early and not have to worry too much about it? Whereas I, I do feel like generally, except for the piece of SBT you talked about, the hierarchical multidimensional piece of it, which is still complex and hard for me to grok. But except for that, I feel like I kind of understand the model of SBT. And I am not even close to there with, with Gradle. I don't even know where to start. Yeah. I, and I've yeah. read books and I've watched you throw Gradle files together in total mystification. I don't, I'm going, how does he know what to do? And I know you're just flinging things at it and saying, does it work? And, oh, let's try this. I just, like, I, I have, I need to understand what I'm doing. That's just me. You, you can just go, well, let's just throw paint at the canvas and we'll yeah. see what happens. Yeah. So, okay. So let's go on a plugin. So it feels okay. like, like build tools, it, it seems like the problems they solve are simple, but it turns out there is a lot of challenges and complexity to what build tools are doing. One of those pieces that seems really complex is plugins. How, like, I don't know. How, how do you think as a build tool creator maintainer, how do you think about plugins and how they change the whole world of build tools? Yeah, the, um, you can kind of see my philosophy on plugins with uh, SBT auto plugins and how those work, but um, effectively there's there's an underlying model to a build tool with how to execute tasks. That's like a fundamental thing, right? Like there's there's a few tentative components of build tools: of caching, tasking, um, and then uh, setting. Setting basically. Uh, so where does my configuration live? How do I run tasks? And how do I make sure everything's cached? Um, for plugins, though. If I want to plug into an existing build, I almost need another model. Like I need to know, here's what a Java build looks like, or here's what a Rust build looks like, you know, because the way those tools work are subtly different. For Java, you know, people tend to do these giant directories that turn into one jar, as opposed to like every directory is independent um, and isolated, right? So um, you need to make sure that when you have a plugin system that comes into a build, that plugin system can be aware of the general shape of the thing it's plugging into, so, which means you need a consistent view of here is what a Java build looks like, here's what a Rust build looks like, here's what a C++ build looks like, you know, here's here's what Python looks like um, for for running tests and things. Um, that uh, that is actually rather hard to do. And what, what, like, say Maven, for example, had one build lifecycle thing, where it's like, here's what every build has. It has this, 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 uh, you know, phase, this phase, this phase, this phase, and you attach it to a phase. The problem with that is if I have interdependencies between tasks from plugins in that phase, I couldn't express it. It was, right. it was an inexpressible yeah. thing. Um, so you almost need... The API is so limited in Maven that you just, you... You can't always define what you need to define. Um, you you get lifecycle hooks, and or you get 
lifecycle callbacks, basically, and mm -hmm. you have no idea what order those things are going to be applied on a given lifecycle phase, right? Right. And if right. you need another phase, like, yeah, good luck. So, so what what we started doing in SVT is we we started fragmenting the build, uh, the the default build into auto plugins. So we had a plugin that was, I do dependency management in my build, and you have to treat that plugin as a freaking public API to every other plugin, right? Yeah. The dependency management part was here's how I say add this dependency, add this dependency from from Maven, right? Um, was what that was for. And it was so that you could create on top of it, say, a Kotlin build or a Java yeah. build. Um, in practice, everyone always creates a Java build and then like other language builds on top of it. But in any case, the, the actual language plugin of, of how do I build this language and that ecosystem is, is its own interface. It's another layer of the build that you have to treat as an API to your plugin authors. And you have to expose extension points. SBT, one of the other successes it has is I can literally take the Java compile task for a Java build, completely replace it with my own, leveraging the underlying one, and the user would never know. Yeah. Right? That's a thing I can do as a plugin. I can say, wait until after Java's done, registering itself, then I'm going to run and replace what it did with my thing. Another language wants to do the same, they can. And we can layer in that way. So if I know I depend on, say, the Kotlin build, I can rely on Kotlin to have been installed and then override what it does and extend it. And that was a fundamental thing in SBT in the core model that was kind of added that kind of allowed a very rich plugin ecosystem to survive because, you know, two things. One, we kept our interfaces stable. If I have this set of settings and this set of tasks, that was an interface to plugins to leverage. Um, and the second thing, and, and this is um, <laughs> the dirty secret is we had maybe, you know, five to 20 people in the world who could write SPT plugins well. And we were a tight knit community. And so it was easy to kind of advertise and describe how things work and get these idioms out to them. And they, created a, just a bajillion number of plugins that covered a huge amount of ecosystem and they they worked well together so you know if you think about um creating an api and having other people leverage it right and then they run into friction and they need to fix because there weren't that many in this ecosystem that could evolve rather quickly if you have a larger ecosystem that's going to be a little bit more difficult there's going to be a bit more friction possibly between plugins there's going to be a little more adaptive maybe less adaptation, but it's still, that's like a critical component of this is, is to make sure that, you know, you can evolve that API. Um, I'll give an example from IDEs. This is the same thing, right? If you wanted to build a, a scholar Kotlin IDE that worked with Java in Eclipse, that has a very heavy plugin model, that's considered a really good plugin ecosystem, right? So Eclipse is considered one of the best plugin ecosystems in the world. But the like Java development environment did not expose itself um, as a thing to be extended. And so if huh. you were working in Eclipse as a plugin against Java, you, we literally used aspect-oriented programming to hack the crap out of it to add our extension points to make, give it an API. That's, that's how you had to do it. 
Um, and it's the same with a build tool. Like build tools and IDEs are, are I would argue they're basically the same thing, just in, huh. in, a, in a different light. Um, but yeah. anyway, you need to expose each of those components as an API for people to leverage and plan for it to be extended. Yeah, and that's something that I found is challenging is I feel like in Gradle, the way that plugins interact with each other leads to this place where I have no idea what is going on in my build because two plugins are doing potentially conflicting things. And it seems like a really hard problem to solve, but I guess in some ways you're saying SBT solved it by making it so you have to expose an interface as a plugin author. And if you want to integrate with another plugin, then you do it through that interface. And yeah. you actually declare a dependency on it. Yeah. Like it's a library. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, Gradle semantic conventions. Like you have you seen these? Like the semantic convention route that Gradle's going? That which it's, is it? Uh, so, so there's Gradle? like an idiom in Gradle where you define a semantic convention, um, like uh, a Gradle KTS file, where you say like, yeah. if the if you define your your build as an application, add this plugin and do this thing. If you define it as Java, yeah. add this plugin and do this thing. That's yeah. like a first step to kind of getting. But it's um the problem the problem I have with it is it's an evolutionary step, not a revolutionary yeah. step. And I think Gradle might want to do a revolutionary step because their underlying fundamental concepts are pretty sound. But because they keep evolving, like that abstraction between what you see and what they want keeps diverging. But um, semantic conventions are the closest thing in Gradle to this world. So if you're using that idiom, right, you can say, I have a Java application in it, or Java subproject. For that Java subproject, I'm going to add in Kotlin as an option to compile, right? I'll add in that yeah. button only when it's labeled as, as Java. It doesn't have the same kind of dependency field between tasks. You still get the same kind of friction because this is added on top of the plugin ecosystem, not before the plugin ecosystem. Right. Uh, yeah. But it, it's it's a it's a step towards it. Yeah, and then one of the other challenges with plugins, I think, is how that surfaces into the build DSL or build definition, because some way the the then user has to be able to configure the plugin, and how that gets exposed to the user seems like something that is generally hard to get right. Um, yeah, and then I guess in the world of SBT, it 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 comes in through settings, right? And settings and tasks that get added into the build graph, and then then you can then set those settings or call those tasks from your, your build, um, just like you would normally. Um, so it's a, in some ways a pretty constrained model, I guess, in SBT for how how the plugin then exposes itself to the to the build uh, DSL is that is that sound yeah we, yeah it, at one point in time in SBT plugins were just settings that the user would that would automatically shovel themselves on the project yeah um, with I think it was thirteen um, this was this was one of the few things I actually did and I, most people accredit a lot of things of SBT to me but honestly Mark Heron and Eugene did far more but anyway. Um, but this is one yeah. of the things I, I actually like designed um, was was the plugin system and that the the, the the fundamental concept is just like a bundle of settings is what a plugin is it's a bundle of settings to apply 
and it it leverages existing settings and modifies them because of that underlying model that allows you to do that. So the only thing the a plugin is allowed to do is say, okay, I need this, I need this set of settings. And here are my dependencies, and then that slots where your manipulations go to the build. Yeah. Right. And that's it. That's all that's all the plugin is allowed to do now. And user settings always happen after plugins, so you can always override and fix things. And and yeah. the key with that design was to make sure it is a hundred percent clear where that setting goes. Right? Yeah. Um, and that the magic of where the setting goes should never confuse the user. Mm -hmm. uh, the user yeah. shouldn't have to know anything at all about the crazy dependency system we have to track the plugins, whether or not things are enabled, whether or not there's conflicts. That should all just be invisible to you, right? Yeah. Um, but it should just feel natural and right and, and just fit. And that was that was kind of the, the key of that. Hmm. Yeah. That's not my experience with Gradle. Um, <laughs> I have a sort of a side question, which is, because I feel like in recent years, Gradle's been trying to do more with um, running, you know, parts of the build in parallel. It seems like they've been kind of inching their way towards it. And it seems to me like that's a fundamental architectural decision that you sort of want to do at the beginning is to say, oh, yeah, we, we want to run. Is that, does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think you saw Make add, you know, multiple jobs to itself mm -hmm. and, and that, uh, yeah. Um, SPT, you, you know, by default ran in parallel from, from the get-go. Okay. That was like one of its big things and that, was to try to run in parallel. And that was um, the build model and defining the graph and all the dependencies across the build. You can, you can then figure out the parallelization points much more easily. Whereas, yeah, I think you're, your model has to be built from the beginning to support that, right? And yeah, maybe that's why there's it's subtleties challenging here, to add on later. Yeah, there's subtleties here. So since SPT did it by default, our users didn't do the things that Gradle users do. My favorite, when I write a unit test and I access a global resource in my unit test, I can no longer parallelize, right? Yeah. Like legitimately their unit test will talk to a real database. In SPT, because of parallel tests, early on, we got a whole bunch of bug reports about, hey, my unit tests randomly failed. It's like, yes, they're parallelized. You can turn yeah. off the parallelization if you want, but stop touching global mutable state in tests. Like, yeah. Because we would actually yeah. parallelize at the test level as well um, and make sure that the unit tests ran multi-threaded. Um, that was another fun, possibly overzealous optimization of SPT where it had its own test running frameworks uh in addition to the underlying test suites um huh. anyway but that's anyway huh. we don't have to go into that but it is a common failure scenario users need to understand the build is parallel you can implement yeah. a task a custom task that cannot be paralyzed so easily it's very easy to do um huh. so in sbt it breaks in Gradle, it doesn't, which means if they were to start parallelizing, a lot of tools would probably be broken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there with programming languages, there's things that should really be in from the beginning, like, you know, generics. and Generics, for sure. I've seen that. <laughs> Screwed up. You know, there's, and, and, 
bolting some of these things on later is really hard. And yet, how do you start with something simple and evolve it when you need to upfront have have covered a bunch of really complex things? <laughs> and I think that's why the that's... cost of entry for a build tool is so high. Like all the actually the complaints you saw with like SPT and how bad it is, you're only now seeing some major competitors to it, possibly. Possibly, but yeah. it's still it's it's hard to oust it um, from the Scala ecosystem because the cost of entry is is high. Like like you're saying, there's these foundational components you have to have to be a good build tool. You have to have caching. You need plugins at this point, right? You need a good yeah. core model. Um, parallelization is Guilty part of caching. Parallelization performance. Yeah, yeah. so many yeah. different. Just the the space is so complex and to start Can from I do scratch. a quick rant for you on, yeah, on, yes, on, on that. Okay. So yeah. minimum viable program or minimal viable product has been to my, in my opinion, like the death of some good software because people don't pay attention to me. Right. They're like, Oh, let's just keep reducing scope to the point where we can get this out there and we'll evolve it later. But there's a lot of a lot of scope they cut that actually is important to make it viable in the yeah. long run. And then you see that, that we feel this now, right? Because yeah. you didn't kind of focus on that. Like, what what are my core tenets I have to nail before I release it? This is why architecture is important. Well, and, and yes. the MVP of a build tool really is something that probably takes, I don't know, five engineering years or something mm. to, to get to the what is actually viable like the the mill build, build tool from uh lee hoy i think there's a lot of really good stuff in it but he at least last i checked didn't have support for plugins and so mm -hmm. that's just one reason why i think mill hasn't caught on that much in the scala ecosystem is it's just like that that's one piece of mvp that is necessary and doesn't exist yet yeah and, and, and because that's, it's hard. that's another thing like based on the discussion we just had around plugins, you know, you, you, you heard a lot of that complexity and a lot of the crazy things SPT allowed to make plugins work well. Um, mill is a much simpler model. And the question now is, can it add plugins that work well? Yeah. yeah. With that can it evolve think, to that? Or does right. the model need to like have that from the beginning? Is there oh, anything sorry. you can do about the dog squealing? <laughs> He's okay. my, my wife just walked outside and he's just super sad. Oh, I mean, hey, dog, dog. what's your he, what's your dog's name? Uh, his name is Sky. So sorry Sky. about that. I didn't I didn't realize she was going to head out for lunch, but <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, that's it's always important. No, I think hey, Sky, I think we're we're uh, we've reached the sky, the limit of the sky with build tools <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> the sky, sky, the sky is the limit. Yeah. Yes. Um. No, it's it, it's really interesting to talk through the build tool stuff because there's so many tensions and i think that 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 finding the balance across all these tensions is really freaking hard and um yeah it's uh and it takes it takes many iterations probably to get it right and i feel like sbt through many many uh, how old is sbt now 12 10 12 years like it's Oh man, it was uh, what two thousand six or seven, maybe, maybe even. Okay. 
maybe even yeah, earlier. So but I feel like it was about 2016 years ish old at this point. And, and now I feel like it's, it's now it's pretty good. <laughs> you know, 15 years <laughs> yeah. later, it's pretty good with yeah, a lot I mean, of work, it, a lot of, a lot of your, you know, evenings and weekends spent. And uh, when you worked at TypeSafe, you know, actual job time, but, uh, and many yeah. other people as well. You know, not just Are there, are there, it seems like there needs to be PhD programs that specialize in the problem of build tools because it's yeah. that complex. Yes, it does seem like it. I wonder if they exist. Yeah. There are well, papers and things, but yeah, the, the, some of the space they're exploring there is, is, um, I don't know how to like, so there another, there's a weight of users on real world tools where we get a tool adopted and it had a simplistic model. And now because of the users, you can't change it. Whereas with the PhD research is like, they don't have users. They're crazy out there for us to go from like where we are today with Gradle, for example, to like research-based things that we've seen, um, you'd either have to sacrifice the entire Gradle community for a Gradle 3.0 or something, or, or yeah. you evolve slowly and hope you can, you know, take what you have today and get there. Bring your users along the with you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and well, I again, think it's, you... it seems like at some point you have to go, oh, we see all the things that didn't work about this. And we've learned, and now we need to create a new build tool that takes what we've learned and, you know, builds. Do but then you, like, it's such a hard problem because yeah. you got to bring old users to the new one. You have to bring the plugin ecosystem. Like there's. Well, it has to be dramatically better. So people will go, oh, finally. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, let's use that. And I think the things that we've been talking about here could achieve that. But. Yeah, someday, Josh, I want to sit down uh, with you over beers and talk about if you were to ever create a new build tool, what what would be some of the design philosophy models uh, mm -hmm. of it? Because that would be uh, fascinating to hear. Um, yeah, what you do do you'll, differently. You'll first have to get me to uh, get back my young hubris of my earlier days. As See, I think oh, this is why no one ever creates a second build tool. Is right. part of the problem is that you have all this wisdom of what what would make a good build tool? And you're like, yeah, I'm never fucking doing that again. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have the energy for it anymore. The crap beat out of you, and you just go. No, I don't have. You know how hard it is, yeah. and you're like, nope, no thanks. So the wisdom is yeah. just wasted, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, is there a person in the world that's created a second build tool? I don't think they exist. Yeah, although Nicholas Wirth created more than one programming language. So, yeah. but I think most people these days, it's like. They create a programming language. They just have the one in yeah. them. Yeah. And then they go, oh, Actually, yeah, like Scala was Martin's like third or fourth language or something. But that's was that it? that I consider like your, your you know your first big hit. Like you're you're like okay, let yeah. me just these were the ones that got you know got me along the way, so I got my big one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when I say creating a second uh, build tool, I'm saying you created a first one that was really successful, or that got that, used. that got yeah. used, that actually got used. And then you created the second one because, yeah, of course you could create a build tool or a programming language that never gets used and then create another one. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Josh, thank you so much. Uh, so we've solved yeah. the build tool problem? Now? Sol yeah. I mean, I, 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 we yeah, know everything solved. we need okay, to good. do. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, then there's nothing more to talk about. That's right. <laughs> build tools 
solved. Yep. And, uh, move on. Yes, courtesy of Happy Path Programming. That's right. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me.